Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the one, the only Dan Z, is busy updating the scoreboard, where, if you look close, for those of you playing along at home, I was wrong. Again. <laughs> how, were you, how were you wrong? I feel like you were, were pretty clear that, hey, this is probably not going to happen during the Super Bowl, and you were right. Yes, that much I got right. At this point, everything we're being told is Star Wars Celebration. That's where the trailer's going to drop. Yada, yada, yada. You did better than the Rams. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard not to do worse than the Rams. But yeah, if you remember from our, our last Looking at Lucasfilm podcast, I mentioned that the trailers for Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, and the Disney's live-action version of Aladdin would be shown during this year's Super Bowl. And, and well, okay, so I was two-thirds of the way right. The first two, the Marvel movies, they did have commercials that did air during the CBS broadcast, whereas Disney's ad for Aladdin wouldn't show up on television till a full week later. Mind you, it was on CBS, but the Aladdin ad aired during the Grammys, which, okay, so you have Will Smith as the genie. I get that. It makes sense to drop that during the Grammys. But did you see the footage of the genie there? I did. I did. And I don't I don't have a problem with it at all. Really? Okay. Yes. I'm a guy who likes to grade in a curve. I mean, again, I'm sorry. I, I looked at that CG footage and suddenly Max Rebo is a really attractive guy. Oh. <laughs> He's much more hip, yes, and yeah. much more vocal. Yeah, the, the, okay, the, we're going to talk about this later when we talk about episode nine. Mm-hmm. But to me, two or three seconds of screen time is not enough of a sample size to accurately assess what kind of a character or what kind of a movie this is going to be. See, but apparently, I'm in the in the select few that feel that way. You're the but I'm, I'm comfortable with my opinion. That is a well-informed opinion. Though, before we, we move on here, did you get to see the Frozen 2 trailer that also dropped this past week? I did. Okay. Um, did you get the Empire vibe? Hmm. Tell me why you say that. I'm interested in your thoughts it on It went... This darker true um, there are there was uh, ice there was ice i thought it would look more like another buildings roman or uh, coming of age story where mm. uh, i mean i certainly think there's uh, i could get a, go a literature teacher on you and talk about the symbolism of water versus well, ice and i think there's a lot you could go into there but i didn't catch an empire vibe okay okay i'm, I'm just saying but that get, doesn't mean that there isn't I, i'll just look at it again through the through the ad at lens and see what i come up with <laughs> okay <laughs> I also, I guess I should warn you, one of the reasons why friends at the studio were saying, this is our empire, because evidently Frozen may be turning into a trilogy. Oh, wow. Well, that'd be great. I love Frozen. But anyway, you did not hear that from me. And speaking no, of tril- I didn't. trilogies, since we last recorded, there were several milestones that were reached with Star Wars Episode Nine, which is supposed to be... The end chapter of the Skywalker saga, we had Anthony Daniels from the set. C-3PO had his 
last day on the set. And Daniels wrote, uh, today is three CPOs. Last on episode nine, he's sad, so am I. But we're so proud to have worked on such with such a lovely, talented cast and crew led by JJ and Kathy. And then February 15th, JJ tweets out a picture of Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, and Oscar Isaac in their episode nine costumes engaged in a group hug on the, the set of the Star Wars movie. And the caption for this one, hang on. It feels impossible, but today we wrap photography on episode nine. There is no adequate way to thank this truly magical crew and cast. I'm forever indebted to you all. In Star Wars circles, people were immediately trying to figure out Ray's haircut. Oh, yeah. uh, but I guess you were saying that there was some controversy within the fan community about this shot? Yeah, there was some angst and wailing and gnashing of teeth as as it can as is the want of some some mm. select individuals. Uh, why are we going back to a desert planet? Are they going to Tatooine? Are they going to Jakku? Uh, that kind of stuff. When when I saw it, what I thought was, oh my gosh, this is lovely. This is beautiful. I mean, it's, of course, it's beautifully photographed. But Oscar Isaac, the most sincere mm-hmm. tears in his eyes, and he's clearly very upset. And you know, but there's also joy there too. And they just look very much like a family. All I saw was a joy of friendship, of telling a good story, of of the joy of making a film that you know people are going to absolutely adore. To complain about what might or might not be by one behind-the-scenes image that isn't even a part of the film itself. See my comments earlier on what I said about Will Smith as the genie. There's nothing to to complain about. I mean, plus, in any mythological story, in any mythological construct, you always go back to the beginning. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, just, that's just part and parcel ever since, uh, you know, the Odyssey was told, you know, thousands of years ago. Dude. It'd be weird if he didn't go back. I'm a little hesitant about the whole we've wrapped production thing. Yeah. Back in February 2016, we had executives of Disney Studios telling us that Rogue One is virtually complete. And then we got that teaser trailer, April 2016. Then suddenly in June, we're hearing about reshoots. There were whole chunks of Rogue One that came together very, very late in the creative process. I mean, I think right. the most infamous is the Darth Vader scene at the end of the movie. That's right. They were four months away from release, and Gareth Edwards was in the editing suite with Javez Olson, and they were looking at the work in progress, the work printed at that point, and it's like, ah, this needs something. This needs just a you know, we're almost there. We're almost over the top. I think it's Javez that, that came up with the idea that we need one more scene in the movie where Darth Vader is a badass. So Gareth is the one who has to go to Kathleen Kennedy and pitch her on Javez's Darth Vader idea. And she goes, OK, but she also now has to go back to Disney and go, oh, by the way, remember that giant pile of money? Could could I have another giant pile of money? Because I need the funds to do the scene. I mean, mind you, it was... They only shot for, what, three days? That sounds right. And I, and I do know, you probably know this too, that, that Peter mm. Jackson was actually on set for that. Was, was he really? Was yeah, oh, which no. is pretty awesome. There's a guy that knows <laughs> how to tell a story, or or did until he made the Hobbit movies, I guess. Oh, that's cool. Well, no, and yeah. if anybody knows about late-in-the-game reshoots, it would be Peter Jackson. Exactly. The Hobbit movie. There, or two? Did I say two? I meant three. Yeah. And as a direct result of, of this plussing, very, very late in the game. I mean, they didn't finish post-production on Rogue One 
to November 28th, which was less than two weeks from when the film was supposed to premiere at the Pantages Theater in L.A., so... Uh, Which is staggering. Can you imagine uh, the stress that must have been on everyone oh, involved? Oh, oh, my God. You know, I, just, I can't even think of it. So let's kind of hold off on the whole episode nine is finished shooting stories, because honestly, until J.J. and his editor get a work print together and look at the whole film and then see what they have, see what they're missing... Any talk of production being wrapped is really, really premature. The only thing that makes me not as concerned is that of all the movies that they've made, well, I don't think Ryan Johnson is a problem, but J.J. is such a pro. I feel like if anybody's going to be ahead of things, I think he will be. Okay, well, here's hoping. But Now, speaking of premature, did you see this announcement for Triple Force Friday? Oh, I saw it. Lucasfilm emailed me about 4.30 in the morning. And and told me about it. And oh my I was, god! Okay. Yeah, it was from their from their head of PR. Yeah. Okay. And so we were thrilled. We were very excited. I could I could certainly tell you a lot about Force Friday. Friday, October fourth. We're not just getting our Star Wars Episode Nine merch. We're also getting the Mandalorian. By the way, did you see the, the, how they're describing the Mandalorian? It's called Mandalorian: A Star Wars Series. Oh, no, I, that, this is breaking news to me. No, I did not see that at all. That's the subheader, evidently, on this thing. And then Frozen 2. So huh. all of this stuff is hitting store shelves on the exact same day. You've done these before. You've done the Force... Uh, well, let's see. Back in 1999, it wasn't called Force Friday, but they mm-hmm. had a, a midnight premiere mm-hmm. at Target and Toys R Us and Walmart for Phantom Menace merchandise. I remember visibly going down the aisle, seeing nothing but three and three quarter inch Star Wars Phantom Menace action figures. And there was a, a husband and wife couple next to me with a shopping cart. And they were just going mm. down the aisles and taking rows and rows and pegs of figures and putting them in the carts. Not even looking at what they got. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty awful. And then episode two, they didn't do that as much because there was such a surplus of, of Phantom Menace merchandise that, that they mm. kind of took a step back. But they did this again for Revenge of the Sith. And it was wonderful because different stores would have exclusive figures. Fast forward to Force Friday for The Force Awakens. The the announcement for that was a couple of months before it actually transpired. Because it happened, I believe, the the end of September for The Force Awakens. And that was tremendous. That was a huge success. I I feel pretty confident that Disney made a billion dollars that weekend on action figure and Star Wars toy sales alone. Mm -hmm. Which was fairly soon after they purchased Lucasfilm, so that obviously didn't hurt their long-term projections at all. Then the role of Rogue One one is certainly something that is going to be very near and dear to my heart, because that that was called Rogue Friday, and the Mm. reason that one was so special, because that one came out on September 30th, which is my birthday, that is also the day the Target commercial that I uh, was one of the co-stars of was in, because I filmed a commercial for Force Friday, so I certainly know a thing or two about Force Friday. Okay, now... For a newbie like myself, what should my shopping strategy be? I mean, obviously what you were just mentioning, the person walking down the aisle and just sort of blindly taking things and throwing them in the cart. I mean, that's really not the way to go about it. But uh, how is it when you go to an event like this and you haven't seen the movie yet? You're looking at characters you don't really know. And does it sometimes spoil the movie to see vehicles or play sets or that sort of thing that give away characters or plots or it can it certainly can they they typically have a selection of three and three quarter inch figures they'll have the black series figures which are the six inch 
figures that are really, really impressive sculpts, and Hasbro makes them in such a way that you can take them out of the box, pose them, play with them, and put them back in the box, and they're, they're highly collectible. They're about 20 bucks a pop, mm-hmm. and they're pretty much Hasbro's bestsellers. But then the Lego sets, they usually have quite a few Lego sets from the upcoming film, and that is certainly where we saw a lot of vehicles before we knew anything about them. For instance, Kylo Ren's shuttle in mm-hmm. The Force Awakens, I first got a glimpse of that in a Lego box. So that that is certainly something that is out there, but it's, it doesn't seem to be so much of an issue that it is ruining major plot points for people because they're still very cognizant of that. So that's not going to be a, f- a factor as far as that. You know, of course, about the famous uh, the Phantom Menace soundtrack uh, guffaw that happened uh, back in 1999, right? Mm, refresh my memory. Uh, well, one of the tracks was mm. uh, titled Death of Qui-Gon. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, could, that caused the people to be a little upset. Nothing has been as extreme as that. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> I, I was one of the victims of that. I wasn't tickled about that at all. Okay. But okay. so as far as strategies go, you mm. pretty much have to divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. We and when our groups, we always have one person who goes for the Funko Pops, one person goes for the action figures, mm-hmm. one person goes for the Black Series figures, and then after you kind of scavenge through that, then everyone kind of takes a step back and starts looking at the board games and the puzzles and the costumes and the T-shirts and the all kinds of stuff. Sounds like there's going to be a lot. You did uh, miss that uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is also going to be. Available then to that is EA's uh, new Star Wars game. Oh, that's right. I, in fact, I just saw the logo for that. Yeah, pretty sharp. Oh, wow. Okay. And that'll be a canonical part of the story as well. I was in my local Target this past weekend and noticed that where the Star Wars Resistance action figures had previously been gone, completely wiped out, a big white hole in the, the pegboard there, which for me, suggests that this show has finally caught on, not just with the target demographic that Lucasfilm Animation had been going after with this show, but also the hardcore Star Wars collectors, and which I guess for me is understandable, because if you've been watching the show since it came back from its holiday 2018 uh, break, Resistance has really been hitting its stride. Oh, it's wonderful. And then the the one that aired tonight, the night oh. we record... Um Basically ends right before The Force Awakens. Really? Talk about synergy. Oh, yeah. And and as you know, I've, I'm mm-hmm. all caught up on Resistance. It's mm-hmm. I really, really like it a lot. It's As Kaz has grown as a character, Kazuta Ziona, played by Christopher Sean, who we had on Coffee with Kenobi this week. I got to sit down and chat with him for about 25 minutes or so. Could not be more charming. Could not be more supportive of Coffee with Kenobi. And he's such a big fan. And in fact, if you listen to the show... You get mm-hmm. to hear him talk about going to different Target stores trying to f- pick up his Kaz action figure. <laughs> it's a great story. Then I feel better that even he's having trouble finding He was, he was. Okay, and I'm cool. noticing the same thing as you, a lot of lot of empty pegs, because people mm-hmm. seem to be picking these things up, which is great. Mm-hmm. They're great-looking figures, too. No, I agree, I agree. But to be honest, last week's episode, the, the new Trooper, I think did an excellent job of sort of mapping out where Star Wars Resistance is, is going to go. I mean, yeah. you suddenly get a sense of what the real stakes are, why, why the First Order has been so persistent about getting a presence on the Colossus. They, you know, suddenly, the last 30 seconds, they were looking at that data stick and suddenly had a sense of, oh, this could be a military fuel depot. Now, I guess we've got 
four episodes after tonight's episode, the core problem, before they they wrap the first season. Is that correct? Or I believe so. And which it makes you wonder, since we're leading right into the Force Awakens, I guess they're going to be running parallel mm-hmm. uh, with what's going on in the films, which is that's never been done before. While the films are still very much in play, which that's exciting. That's very very challenging storytelling, and that's also a tribute to the. Lucasfilm story group and the kind of juggling that they're going to have to do with the creatives to keep things, you know, on the same thematic page. And I have zero doubt that they're going to do it. I mean, they do such a wonderful job. It's amazing. It's really compelling and brave storytelling. Very much looking forward to the rest of the season. Uh, a quick side note here, though, that uh, not to, <laughs> to introduce a downer element to the show, but earlier this month, we lost Ron Miller. He was the CEO of Walt Disney Productions back in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And so why should that matter to Star Wars fans? Because Ron was the guy who originally reached out to George Lucas in 1983 with the idea that Lucasfilm and Walt Disney Imagineering should collaborate some projects for the, to the Disney theme parks. And and among the ideas that got floated at the very first meeting between Ron and George was a Star Wars-themed indoor roller coaster. Dan and I will talk more about this topic once we get back from this commercial break. And we're back. When you talk about Star Tours, a lot of people automatically the name that comes to mind to them is Michael Eisner. That's perfectly understandable. He was the CEO of the Walt Disney Company back in January of 1987 when the original version of this motion-based simulator attraction first opened at Disneyland Park. When it comes to Star Tours, the guy who got the ball rolling wasn't Michael Eisner. It was Ron Miller. Okay, Dan, what do you know about the Disney filmography of the 1970s? When, what's your favorite Disney film from that period? Because <laughs> there were so many wonderful films, weren't there? Yeah, I, t- I remember being dragged to see Pete's Dragon quite a bit when I was oh. a kid. And I remember Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Okay. Candle okay. Shoe. I had a crush on, jo- on Jodie Foster, but that was because I saw her on, it was on HBO all the time. Mm-hmm. But no, there, it's not like they are the legendary ones that we finally think of now. No, not at all. I mean, this was Gus the Field Go Kick a Mule. And <laughs> I remember that too. <laughs> the Apple Dumpling Gang. Yeah, and this is the thing. Disney was in a really bad place in the late 1970s and 80s. They, they were not making movies that audiences were connecting with. In fact, what made this obvious was Star Wars. It was one of these things where it's like, here's this massive success, and that's May 77, right? Yep. And it's one of these things where Disney's standing outside of that, and mind you, the entire time that Star Wars is in development and Lucas is trying to get this going, Disney has its own sci-fi adventure thing working its way slowly through development called Space Probe 1 that finally actually gets into production because Star Wars is such a hit, and it's the black hole, which crashes and burns, largely because, again, they looked at what George Lucas was doing and figured, okay, we got robots. Do you remember old Bob, the robot that's in the black hole that is so clearly a ripoff of R2? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, 
Oh, yeah. I, you're not going to speak ill of uh, The Black Hole, are you? I love that movie. I love the look of the ship. <laughs> I love the effect of the actual black hole itself. Mm-hmm. But the story? You know what? I haven't seen it since I saw it in theater, so I'm maybe I'm okay. looking at it through through black hole colored glasses. Okay, because it you know it, it's basically twenty thousand leagues up in the sky. Yeah, Maximilian Shell is basically doing Nemo, only a Nemo with a much less effective script. Yes. See, the thing is, when you're a Walt Disney Company, you need hit films, not just because. They improve the company's bottom line and they give you things to release on VHS and that sort of thing. But you also need stuff that you can put in the pipeline for the parks. What was happening in the 70s and 80s, because Disney was not making films that were connecting with audiences, they didn't have fodder for the parks. Mind you, the Imagineers would develop things. I mean, for example, I've seen the concept art for the Herbie ride, where the gimmick is you're riding in a Volkswagen through this attraction. At one point, you're you're literally rolling across the supports of the the Golden Gate Bridge, looking down into the harbor. And in fact, I think the finale of the ride is just like the scene out of the original Love Bug the car would split in half. And so, you know, the people in the front would suddenly be competing with the people who were seated in the back. But again, they didn't make that. There's also a Black Cauldron boat ride that I've seen concept art that Oh, just, boy. Yeah. But the Imagineers were like, we're doing what we can with what we have. And eventually they called for a meeting with Ron Miller. And they, again, he's the then CEO of Walt Disney Productions. And they were just like, we don't have stuff to work with. In fact, the one project that the Imagineering was able to get funded was a redo of Fantasyland at Disneyland. But this was literally working with films like Snow White, Ichabod and Mr. Toad, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, films that were 30, 40 years old at that point. There was nothing new to draw upon. And they were like, we have to think outside the box here, especially when you look at the California theme park market, which Six Slides Magic Mountain, Universal Studios, Knott's Berry Farm, they were adding thrill rides that were really hooking the teenage audience in. It's like, if we're going to compete, we need to have rides that teenagers want to ride. And that means we need to talk with people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. And to Ron Miller's credit, he, he listened to what they were saying. And so summer of 83... Uh, he arranges a meeting with George Lucas. George actually drives down from Skywalker Ranch because Ron and his wife, Diane Disney Miller, they had just purchased the Silverado Vineyards in Napa Valley. And so they have this lovely meal outside when they're sitting out at the picnic table talking with George. And they're hoping to sort of win him over to working with Disney. And it's like, what they didn't realize is George had been this lifelong Disneyland fan that... Had you ever heard the story that he was there at Disneyland? I was say, he says he was there the first day. Well, technically, it was the second day it was open to the public. Evidently, the Lucas family lived in Marin County. Where was it? Yeah, that oh. sounds right. But they had to drive down. So it was one of these things where I guess they missed it the first official open to the public day. 
by a day. But they were there the second day it was open to the public. And the Lucas were so impressed with their initial visit to the park that they then made an annual thing. They'd go down to Anaheim. And so anytime Walt would open something new at the park, George and his family were among the first to experience it. So for Ron Miller to be sitting down at the picnic table at Silverado and pitching him on the idea that we'd really love to work with you and get some theme park attractions going, this was a dream come true for George. But now the question was, well, how... What's the best way to bring the Star Wars characters into the park? What's a way to do this in a way that really catches people's attention? And this is the early 1980s. This was the point where Disney was really into doing big roller coasters. And so the notion was, well, what if we do a Star Wars-themed indoor roller coaster? Basically, what was supposed to happen is that after you left the load-unload area, you'd proceed to the lift hill. And as you're going up the lift hill, to the left and the right of the coaster, two holograms would suddenly appear. One would be Yoda, and the other would be Emperor Palpatine. So Yoda is trying to convince you to follow the ways of the Force, all right? <laughs> Whereas the Dark Lord of the Sith is trying to seduce you to come to the dark side. And, and as you're in the coaster, to uh, the left and the right of your seat, depending on where you're sitting in the coaster, to your left or right you'd suddenly see a panel light up. And literally, there was there was a logo that looked like Yoda's face, or there was a logo that looked like Emperor Palpatine's face. And you you could choose. Wow. You could You could hammer on the logo. You get to vote on w what track you get to take. And what was supposed to happen is you got to the top of the load hill, and depending on what you voted for, your, your vehicle either went to the left and you had a dark side experience, or it went to the right, and you had a force-driven experience. Now, on the dark side, uh, you were supposed to be on a track that would take you back by show scenes that featured close encounters with Boba Fett and uh, Jabba the Hutt and Darth Vader. If, on the other hand, the majority of the, the people on the coaster had voted for the, to follow the ways of the Jedi, you would have seen Luke, you would have seen Han, you would have seen Leia, and wonderful idea. George was really excited about it. And so the Imaginators go out and start talking with coaster manufacturers about, well, this is what we'd like to do, a dual track, you know, where people vote. And all the manufacturers for that period were like, you're high. You can't do this. You, you, you can't build a switch at the very top of the hill that then, you know, uh, your, your load hill that then determines which way that your coaster car goes. It, it's just, it's never been done before. And then it not only has to work perfectly, it has to work perfectly 365 days a year, some days, you know, for 18 hours a day. Eventually they handed it off to the MAPO, which was the uh, manufacturing arm of Imagineering and said, okay, if we have to build this in-house, how long is this going to take? And the folks at Maple came back and said, look, realistically, between the design, the test period, you know, that sort of thing, it's going to take us five years to come up with a track switching mechanism that will actually make this Star Wars-themed choose-your-own-path coaster work. This is Disney, again, looking out at the killer California theme park market it's going to take us five years to get this coaster up out of the ground. And it's just sort of like, that's not going to work. One of the reasons we're getting in bed with George Lucas now is we need something in the park that excites people today, that gets them to come out to the Disney parks as soon as possible. Of course, the irony of this situation is 15 years later, the Imagineers are spitballing ideas for a new coaster for Disney's Animal Kingdom. 
one with a ride would come to the sudden stop at the top of the load hill because it, if you looked in front of you, it looked like the abominable snowman had torn up the tracks in front of you and you, you yeah. have nowhere to go. And you now have to slide backwards down the hill. But the only way that worked is if, again, they had a, a, a track switch that was able to move very quickly because obviously the train that's coming up the hill behind you has to have some place to go. So you have to be diverted to another track. And what they figured is they'd need a switch that could make it possible for a train to reverse directions and go backwards inside of six seconds, something that had never been accomplished in the world of coasters before. But they actually found the solution to this, Dan, in, in the world of railroading. So the, the, there are these track switches that they use for a, really for the trains and the, uh, the subway world. And Disney just found this technology and licensed it. Mind you, these track switches... They weigh 200,000 pounds a piece. They, Disney actually had to bring in any special crane wow. just to be able to hoist this thing into the Expedition Everett construction site, you know, with the whole conceit that it had to operate inside of, of in six seconds. And they work beautifully to this day. Still can't fix the jetty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the switch, the switch yes. is perfect. Yes, it really is. And that is a tremendous ride, too. Absolutely. In fact, it speaks to the fact of how well the rest of the ride is designed and the show quality and that sort of thing, that these days it almost doesn't matter that the giant audio animatronic Yeti doesn't work because the rest of the ride is so exciting and, again, works so smoothly mm -hmm. that you only overlook the fact that, yeah, that thing hasn't moved in quite some time. If this technology had been available in the early 1980s and within the coastal community, Disney would have certainly gone ahead with the construction of this indoor Star Wars-themed coaster. But it would have been wonderful. Now, we did get to have little samples. Whenever, we, whenever they do Galactic Nights, they always change the rock and roller coaster to Star Wars music, and they turn off all the, the lights, basically. And then, of course, Space Mountain. They've redone theirs a couple mm -hmm. times in California, Hyperspace Mountain, and I, I did that when, when I went to California for the Target commercial too. Mm. And I'm not really a huge roller coaster guy anymore because I don't really like the, f I don't like heights. Mm. But I forced myself, forced myself to do it. Thank you very much, because it was Hyperspace Mountain, and <laughs> I thought it was great. So if if this was something that George had, was kind of dreaming up, I, man, it would have been neat if that would have come to fruition. But Sounds like Galaxy's Edge is going to give us plenty of thrills anyway. Oh, no, no, absolutely. And because this technology didn't exist back in the, the early 1980s, well, that's why the Imagineers shifted their attention to Ready Fusion's flight simulator technology. And this was, in fact, a ride platform that would allow ILM and WDI the opportunity to tell a story that was set in a galaxy far, far away, but not without a few hiccups along the way. And I've told you about the story about Mark Eads, the Imagineer, who actually went to England and was the one who tried out the Ready Fusion technology and then came back and was, was consulting with George Lucas and Dennis Murin about what they were going to try to do with Star Tours? No, I don't think so. So picture this. You're in a meeting with George Lucas, and George is spitballing, and he's, you know, okay, so here's what we're going to do with Star Tours, you know, we're going to start off with a close-up of the, the X thing, and then we're going to go to a long shot of the, the Death Star. And and Mark actually has to interrupt George at this point and go, uh, Mr. Lucas, there can be no close-ups. There can be no cuts. Our view 
in this attraction is out through the windshield. I mean, that's the whole conceit. You know, we are on a vehicle flying through space and we are looking out through the window and all this stuff is happening directly in front of us. And so here's Marty Scalar, the head of WDI, who is giving Mark epic size stink eye because he's like, you are telling George Lucas he is wrong. Nobody does that. And God love Dennis Murin. You know, he's like, oh my God, Mark's right. Oh, this is going to be a lot harder than we originally thought. And because Dennis was willing to step up and say, yeah, we, we got to figure out a way to do this and the continuous shots and how everything's through the windshield and that sort of thing. And that set them on the right path to do the Star Tours that we know today. And, and which brings me back to, you just interviewed the gentleman who did the voice of Kaz. You have to bring Mark Eads on Coffee with Kenobi. I mean, this guy has so many amazing stories about the design and development of Star Tours and, and being there in the building and, and talking with Dennis and talking with George. I mean, it just, it would be such a wonderful show. Yeah, gotta bring him on sometime. Oh, I'd love to. That'd be great. Yeah, he'd, he'd be awesome. Now, if people are looking to hear, for example, this interview with Kaz, where should they go? You can go to anywhere that you are able to listen to podcasts and find Coffee with Kenobi. We are a weekly show that will have you look at the mythology of Star Wars in a whole new way and hopefully laughing a little bit in the process as well. We we take the subject matter seriously. We don't take ourselves very seriously every week. I have new guest hosts helping me, and, and sometimes you might hear Mr. Jim Hill bringing us up to date on Galaxy's Edge and all kinds of other stuff. You can also find me on our Patreon show, CWK Pour Over, on our Patreon page. And my writing is on stars.com and IGN. Okay. My side of the street, strictly podcast. We got Disney Dish with Lentesta, fine tuning with Drew Taylor. We have Marvel Us Disney with Aaron Adams. We also have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. And we have our brand new, can you put another show? I want that. It's a show about Disney merch that I'm doing with Shelley Valladolid, who, by the way, just happens to be my ex-wife. This could get really interesting. So that is it for this week with looking at Lucasfilm. Thank you so much for, for your guidance in regard to Triple Force Friday. I feel like I should invest in some shoulder pads. and You might need to. Okay. Yeah. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to head to my local Target now and practice running up and down the aisles. On behalf of Mr. Z, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network.